0: All right, so today we are talking about communicating with patients about their medications, doing a patient-centered approach. So we're going to go through our objectives today, which are to describe how a shifting healthcare environment has created opportunities for patient-centered communications, describe the reasons for development of patient-centered care and why patients want it, describe personal barriers that a clinician may have that hinder his or her ability to effectively communicate with patients, We'll also go through other types of barriers, five listening skills in the model for patient-centered health and medication care that have been shown to improve patient outcomes. We'll also go through defining what empathy is, and recall how it can be used to build these patient relationships. We'll also go over the differences between open-ended questions and closed-ended questions, and really highlight why it's important to use open-ended questions when we're speaking with our patients. And state how eye messages are constructed and used to um, help set boundaries and retain control of a conversation. Uh, so we're going to go through all of that uh, today. And again, this is in reference uh, to your textbook, the Patient-Centered Pharmacology. It's Chapter 3 in that textbook. So all the information is contained in there. So patient-centered care, what does it actually mean when you talk about the definitions? So it means that patients are treated as partners in the healthcare decision-making, and they're encouraged to take responsibility for their health. If someone just sits there and you talk at them, they're less likely to take their medications, to be adherent, to really have an understanding. If you can get them to participate or their family to participate as well, that's really helpful for outcomes for our patients. Uh, We do that whenever we do uh, heart failure education. For example, that's one thing that we as the pharmacy team do to supplement nursing education. And anytime there's a family member in the room, that's great that you can involve more people in their care. So patient-centered communication, it focuses on the patient's needs, values, and wishes. And patients are more likely to be compliant, right, when there's a realistic assessment of their knowledge and they're allowed to help shape their dosing regimens. So, for example, warfarin's a great medication that, um, you know, maybe they have to take it uh, one dose Monday, Wednesday, Friday, a different dose Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. There's some wiggle room there where we can alternate that schedule that might make it more easy for them. A clear and effective um, communication with the clinician and trust of a therapeutic relationship are all key. Effective communication, it's something that is a skill and it can be learned and practiced. And a lot of practitioners believe that in order to have effective patient-clinician communication, this means you have to sit down and spend a long time with your patients. That's not necessarily true. By developing smarter communication methods, it's possible to see patients in less time and still be an effective communicator. I think one of the largest things to help you make sure that your message is being received uh, well is doing that teach-back method and having the patient repeat that back to you. Because uh, you can talk, 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 just like I'm talking to you right now, right? But then. Uh, when it comes time for you guys to teach back to me in the form of the exam, that's when we find out, you know, maybe I didn't effectively communicate something so well, or maybe this can be strengthened for next year, you know, so same thing when you're doing teach back method with your patients in a clinical setting, that's kind of your check for, did everything I say get through to the patient or not? So there's barriers to effective communication. There's physical barriers, language barriers, and also personal and emotional barriers. So what are physical barriers? So a physical barrier is anything that impedes the dialogue between the clinician and the patient. So things like telephones, pagers, or cell phones can be ringing, staff may be conversing outside in the hallways. Uh, So the best case scenario is for each person to be sitting and standing in a private and quiet area where you can have eye-to-eye contact. Not always possible, but that's the ideal situation. And then have you guys heard of White Coat Syndrome before? Okay, so this is where a patient sees a white coat as you guys are all in your white coats right now and they may become anxious or unable to fully express their concerns because they see the white coat as an authority figure, uh, which is justifiable, right? But they might make them nervous. Um, So they may feel that they shouldn't bother the busy clinician or speak until they're asked a question. So kind of breaking down that, that barrier is helpful for the patient to feel more comfortable in asking you their questions. Language barriers are definitely also another barrier. Um, So language barriers uh, can be based on the language that the patient's speaking, but it can also be medical jargon. And you want to avoid talking down to the patient and making it too simple for them if they're, you know, um, able to carry that conversation with you. And then of course we talk about, and I'm sure you're aware, not speaking above the patient's level too. Uh, second languages are also you know, important too. So someone might be speaking English with you, but that's not their first language, and Spanish is their first language. And I'm sure a lot of you in this room do speak Spanish. I can speak from my perspective. I don't, so that's a challenge for me when I'm communicating to patients, uh, because English you know, is what I'm able to communicate with. So I have to use other sources to be able to help me um, if Spanish is their primary language, um, or they're not fluent in English. Um, so another thing about the physical barriers, because patients can forget things um, or they might feel intimidated or, or whatnot, it's also important to remember that the patient brings a list of questions. You can advise them. So if it's like your first appointment with them and you're prescribing them, you're changing you know, certain things with them, let them know next time they come back to you. Bring a list of questions with them so you guys can go through it. I do that myself too because I'll forget and I'll get talking to a physician. I'm thinking back to my most recent like OBGYN appointments and I'll forget like all the things that I wanted to ask. I always have the questions on my notepad because we'll get talking and then I'll be out the door and next thing you know, I realize I forgot to ask like two of my questions. So that's something that's really helpful to advise them to do. And then it's less work for you in the long run because you're going to get less follow-up phone calls, less things that you have to address afterwards. Uh, Personal and emotional barriers are another thing. So patients wanna have the clinician's full attention, right? which can be challenging, of course, as a busy clinician, but trying to focus on that patient and be present in the moment is going to be uh, key for you to have effective communication with them. So this is going to be something that enhances patient care, it helps to establish trust, and it also helps the patients with their medication management, too. There's several useful uh, techniques with communication. We're going to talk about active listening, the use of open-ended questions, and the use of eye messages. So those are three things that we're going to touch on today. So active listening also includes empathetic responding. So what are those? So active listening it's a structured form of listening and responding that focuses the clinician's attention on the speaker. And empathetic uh, responding means communicating your understanding of the patient's situations, feelings, and motives. So the patient's coming to you, right? They have some type of... Uh, issue that's going on and they want to seek uh, some type of resolution from you. So before you dive into the solution on how to fix their problem, taking a step back to understand their situation, provide some empathy there, um, be, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear that you're feeling that way today, I can understand how that must be frustrating, let's talk about blah, blah, blah. That goes a long way in establishing the relationship with the patient so that they feel comfortable confiding in you. So let's go ahead and talk about active listening. So being actively engaged with the patient. So not passive listening where you're just sitting there, you're typing on the computer, and they're talking at you, and that's the end of it. How are we actively participating and showing respect to the patient whenever they're here with us? So the first one seems intuitive, but paying attention, right? So you wanna give your patients undivided attention and acknowledge what they're saying by looking at them directly, eye contact putting aside distracting thoughts and observing their body language. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into an office and there's been typing on the computer the whole time that I'm interacting with the provider. And I understand because they're multitasking, and as a practitioner, totally get it, I'm busy too. But it does make you feel like, are they actually listening to me? Do they care about me? And that's, you know, me as another healthcare professional having that understanding of their day-to-day workflow, so I can't imagine a patient that might not have that same level of um, understanding. So being able to make that eye contact with the patient, or hey, I just have to take a couple quick notes to document some things, but then I'm gonna uh, come right back to you, as it goes long way. Showing that you're listening via your body language and uh, gestures. So occasionally nod, smile, use other facial expressions that show that you're listening and you're actively engaged in the conversation with the patient. Um, some of us might be more serious, uh, that might not be a skill that comes naturally, but being able to like nod as a patient's talking, it shows them that you're listening and you're processing what they're saying and you're not thinking about 10 or 30 different other things you have going on. Uh, Provide feedback, too. So paraphrase what the patient has said. So um, what I hear you say is that you're concerned uh, that you're having to wake up frequently at night to use the restroom. Let's take a look at your medications and see what we can do about that. Uh, Defer judgment or drawing conclusions too early. Get the patient to tell their full story without interrupting them. So even though you might see where the conversation is going, take a second to let them finish their train of thought before jumping in with a solution. You'll want to respond appropriately and empathetically and be respectful and non-judgmental throughout the process. So open-ended questioning. So have you guys heard of open and closed-ended questions? All right. So these are worded to encourage patients to share information and emotions. So open-ended questions begin with things such as who, what, when, where, why, and how. And they're useful to evaluate a patient's ability to understand and speak English as well. Because you're getting the patient to talk more, right? They're not just answering yes or no. So if you can answer a question with yes or no, it's a closed-ended question. If it requires more of a dialogue, then it's an open-ended question. So if your patient says that they speak English, but they're just answering yes and no to all of your questions, you might not be able to assess that, right, if they need help and interpretation. Uh, This also helps to determine the patient's educational level, too. So here are some examples of open or closed-ended questions. So if someone were to ask a question, what are you expecting to happen when you take this? Is that an open or a closed-ended question? It's open, it's open right? Can you answer no. it with yes or no? no? What are you expecting to happen when you take this medication? Yes, that doesn't make sense. Right. No, that doesn't make sense. right? So it's an open-ended question. Otherwise, it's closed-ended. So I go through the example with you so you know the difference if it shows up on an exam, right? Okay. All right, establishing boundaries using I messages. So, iMessages express the health professional's thoughts and feelings, and then what behaviors, words, or actions give rise to certain feelings, and lastly, what effects the conversation is having on the health professional. So, these are actually things that they say to use whenever you have, you know, if people have conflicts with other people, too, right? So, iMessages, instead of saying, like, you make me feel this way, it's I feel this way, right? So, I feel blank when you blank because it makes me feel blank about blank. So, it's things that are directed to how you feel, and we'll go through some examples. Um, so, there's actually a case here from the book. So, we'll do this. So, a patient with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease comes into the clinic for a refill of their bronchodilator and their inhaled corticosteroid. He has a packet of cigarettes in his shirt pocket, so we know smoking is going to make these situations worse, right? The patient has not stopped smoking. Uh, they started a smoking cessation, cessation program. Sorry, they haven't stopped smoking. They haven't started a smoking cessation program or accepted counseling and medication for smoking cessation, even though these topics have been discussed at your prior visits. So just think, you're taking care of a patient that has COPD. Um, you've talked to them about stopping to smoke and then they come up for their follow-up visit and you see a cigarette pack in their pocket. Um, so today he asked if it's really necessary for him to quit smoking he also asked are the warning about cigarettes written on the package really true or are they just scare tactics so in response to um, the clinician uh, in in response the clinician states the following i message i feel really upset and concerned when i see you continue to smoke i care about what happens to you when i see cigarettes in your pockets it makes me feel like my advice is not worth anything Maybe a little intense when I read this example from the textbook, but my personal perspective. But the point here is that you're not saying, you're doing this, I can't believe that you're doing this. Like the message is about you and you're conveying your concern for the patient. So some people would respond to the preceding case with a you message instead, which is not something you want to do. A you message would focus on the behavior seen right now by placing blame, making judgment, or maybe making like a belittling remark to the patient. So an example of a you message is the following. I'm really not sure what you're looking for here. We've talked about this so many times, and you've deliberately ignored my advice about smoking. I know you're going to do whatever you want anyways, regardless of what I say. To tell you the truth, you're acting... Interesting. Incredibly foolish. I hope you would never speak this way to a patient. And irresponsibly. And I will not be held accountable if you die from smoking. Intense, right? Okay, this is the example from the book, right? But the point here is we want to use I messages, not you messages. More about how, like, you feel and conveying your concern for the patient instead of placing blame on the patient. And this goes for general life advice, too. It's hard in, like, the heat of, like, a conflict, um, you know, but using I messages are more effective um, at resolving any type of conflict than a u-message. So it does more to encourage a conversation than finger pointing and anger expressed in the you message, which would likely end any further helpful conversation. And then um, the book goes on to say once an I message has been stated, you can also establish boundaries at the end uh, by stating something like, I know that stopping smoking is a difficult process and I want you to attend a smoking cessation program where all of your further questions can be answered. Um, So that's another thing where you're showing empathy and then also talking to them about what the resolution is here. Okay. So continuing on with medication safety and communication, so patients often accept prescriptions that they'll never use or fill, um, prescriptions that they'll never take. Um, So you might write that prescription, but how do you know that that patient's actually going to take that? So many times it's due to misunderstandings about the prescription and its benefits or fear of side effects and adverse reactions. Um, So for example, um, heart failure, you need to be, if you have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you need to be on a beta block or an ACE inhibitor or or an ARB. Um, uh, as an example, right? Uh, There's a host of medications you need to be on. But a patient might feel like, this is a lot of medications for my heart failure, do I really need to take all of these, right? Um, And so they might be concerned, with so many of them, uh, maybe they're concerned about side effects or they just feel, oh, I can take one or two because they're all for heart failure. So it's really important to counsel them how each one works and why they're different and why they need all of them to make a complete regimen. So an important part of patient education and counseling, it needs to include actually teaching the patients how to correctly manage their medications. And verify all the medication history and review the medication list at every single visit. So even once you establish that uh, relationship with the patient, review the med list with them at each visit, because they might have picked up this herbal or this OTC, or like my father-in-law decided to cut their apixipan dose in half, just because, things like this, you know, these things happen, and, and they, you know, do this prior to going to the prescriber, and I share that story with you, because he told me that in passing, and uh, my husband and I, um, who are both pharmacists, are seriously? You know, so we have to have the conversation, you know, and, and even with pharmacists in the family, that still happens. So um, sometimes patients take onus of their own medications and do things and make tweaks um, prior to seeing you. You also want to maintain an accurate, up-to-date, and accessible medication list within the patient's chart. That's really important, right? It needs to be accurate and up-to-date. You're always verifying it. There's so many tweaks, and, you know, and if the patient didn't write them all down, maybe they forget to tell you. So going through that med list is really, really important. And then um, I have a note, a bullet here. Many offices, medical assistants, and nurses help to take the medication history. However, it's still your responsibility as the treating clinician to verify accuracy and review with the patient. So when I go into an office, I'm usually the first person that sees me, I'm thinking, well, do you like my med history? Are you taking any medications, you know? But then when the clinician comes in, they can't ignore that and assume that it's accurate. They need to still review that with me because it's also your license, you know, too, right? Mm-hmm. So I see, oh, you're just taking a multivitamin at home. Is there any other medications that you're taking, you know? Have that conversation with the patient. Benefits of using a medication list, um, efficient charting, safer refills, it helps with communication with other clinicians, um, information recall, and also that allergy documentation is key too. And I'll tell you guys, whenever you document an allergy, ask the patient what their allergic reaction actually was, right, so we can assess if it's a true allergy. Because not everyone is allergic to penicillin, even though you might feel differently when you're practicing in Miami. Um, There's lots of people that report penicillin allergies, but there's not an actual allergy. Um, So you want to document what was the reaction. Was your throat closing when you were taking it and you couldn't breathe, or did you have like an upset stomach, right? Because sometimes when you have allergies to certain medications, if um, you can't take other medications in other classes, and you eliminate therapy options for patients. So we want to make sure that we're actually clarifying the allergy and what the symptoms are that the patient had. So clinicians should take drug history. Um, And I say the thing about penicillin just because uh, we have like a lot of patients I can say come into our hospital that report a penicillin allergy and it's not a true allergy. So a lot of hospitals institute things like penicillin delabeling programs where we can try to get penicillin off the patient's allergy field if they don't have a true allergy by spending the time to investigate how long ago was your allergic reaction? Was it something that you had when you were a kid? Have you started, have you done any other medications that? might be those meds that you can't use that cross react because if that's the case, it's most likely not one. There's penicillin skin testing you can do too to verify if it's a true allergy or not. So those, um, penicillin I think is a big thing because it takes away a lot of antibiotics that you can't use. Um, so making sure that you document what the actual allergic reaction is is helpful. A clinician should take a drug history by asking open-ended questions. So can you tell me what medications you're taking at this time? versus are you taking any other medications at this time? Because That would be a yes or no answer versus this one, which is an open-ended question. Ask, too, if they've been seeing other clinicians who prescribe medications for them. So depending on your practice, maybe you're a specialist, um, but you'll want to know other clinicians that they're seeing um, in case anything overlaps. Maybe another provider is also providing them pain medication, for example. Um, So you'll want to have that information. Ask about over-the-counter medications and home remedies. We're gonna do a whole presentation on those, uh, dietary supplements and things of the like. And then, uh, cause there's a lot of drug interactions that can occur with those. Um, as some of them have place in therapy too though that have made it into guideline based evidence as well. So it's important to have knowledge of those. And then commonly overlooked medications and the medication list, just some commonly ones that providers may overlook or not ask about. Our birth control pills, inhalers, Uh, eye drops and patches, herbal medicine, and medications prescribed by other clinicians. So those are things you want to make sure that you're addressing um, and finding out whether or not the patient is taking those. And a patient might be um, forgetful to report them, like a lidocaine patch that they're taking because they're thinking about tablets that they need to ingest versus a patch that's on their body. Both, of course, are medications, but one might be more in the forefront of their mind, the tablets, and the patch. So, culturally competent communication. So, this term refers to the provider's ability uh, to communicate with awareness and knowledge of healthcare disparities, and understand the social cultural factors that have important effects on health beliefs and behaviors. So, for example, certain racial and ethnic groups they have higher rates of a particular disease, so higher prevalence. So in African American populations, cardiovascular diseases present at a higher incidence than other ethnicities. Uh, Diabetes in American Indians and Hispanic American populations um, present at a higher uh, level. And then clinicians must determine how well their patients can understand and participate in healthcare decisions. Identifying and addressing biases is an important step to providing quality health care to all patient populations. And then use those translation services. Also use your bilingual and bicultural staff. Uh, Simplified written diagrams are helpful and go a long way with patients. Uh, Patient education and leaflets in the patient's native language and computer translators are also helpful. So depending where you practice, you may have these tools as a resource for you. Um, or if you're starting your own practice, in the, in the future, you might have to purchase them, right? But there's lots of translation services, even, you know, Google Translate is an option. Um, but also use of your bilingual and bicultural staff. So like at Sinai, if I'm going to educate a patient on heart failure, my colleagues speak Spanish. So if the patient's Spanish-speaking, you know, I'll usually trade off and get an English patient and send him up to the Spanish-speaking patients. Um, so that's a great thing about being here is our primary languages that I can say that I encounter are Creole and Spanish, and usually there's somebody around that speaks one of those languages. Um, but also patient education leaflets in that patient's native language is helpful. So if you're giving away an education leaflet, make sure you have it available in the other languages too. So uh, you know we have uh, Spanish and Creole in our patient education leaflets as a, uh, in addition to um, English. Um, computer translators, there's lots of great, programs we have like an iPad that you can get and um, you call a translation service that Mount Sinai subscribes to and they have so many different languages that you can choose from and then there's a person that shows up on the video chat and they you, you know you provide the education and then they translate for you and they're a certified medical translator that understands the medical jargon and all of that and they can communicate in a ton a ton of different languages So there's plenty of services like that So find out what they have at your institution wherever you're practicing I think especially as a student when you're on rotations because you're gonna have to speak to patients So it's helpful to know what other um, what translation services they have Especially in a place as diverse as Miami you're gonna get a lot of different languages So what about communicating with children and adolescents? So maybe most of your patients that you're communicating with are adults, but what happens when you have a younger patient population? So typically this is a three-way process, so it it involves you as a healthcare professional, the child, but also their parent or their caregiver as well. And children and adolescents, they need to be communicated with on their level that's appropriate for their age and also their cognitive development. So notice that it's a three-way process here, right? It's not just with you and the parents. It's you, the child, and the parents. So involve them, if, they're, if it's age appropriate, within that communication. So general techniques for communicating with and empowering, so think of it as empowering, right? You're empowering that child, who's your ultimate patient, to be involved in their healthcare. So always introduce yourself. So when you walk in, you know if that child's old enough, introduce yourself to the child too. Don't just, don't just have your communication with the parent only. Uh, give your name to the child first, and then say to the parent that you're going to talk directly to the child. And then start by asking a few general questions to gain appreciation for their cognitive level um, so you can go from there. You're gonna wanna use those open-ended questions again. And uh, simple declarative sentences such, it's important that you work with your mom and dad in taking this medication. Do you know what I mean by that? Or can you tell me what I mean by that would actually be an open-ended question. And then ask the child or adolescent if she or she has questions for you. So if you say do you have questions and they don't come up with any questions, Give examples of questions that patients have asked you. Like, okay, so some examples that I get are, what will the color of this medication be? You know, so you can kind of involve them in that way and kind of loosen them up a little bit depending on, you know, their age. And give those examples. That's a good technique. Um, Pay attention to their nonverbal behavior, so are they looking down, are their arms crossed? You know, if you're not getting through, try with them again, because if you're only directing the conversation to the parent, you're not getting the buy-in from the child or the adolescent, they're less likely to take that medication. Of course, this has to be age-appropriate, right? You know, if it's an infant, you know, the parent's making all the decisions, right? But um, when it's a child, it is helpful to involve them. If you appear bored, rushed, or not fully committed to helping the child or adolescent, they may interpret this to mean, this person doesn't care about me, so why should I trust what they say? And if you think about it too, you're kind of like setting the groundwork for that person when they become an adult to have that relationship with um, healthcare providers, right? So if they have a really big, you know, if you think about child, children, or adolescents, You know, they're really young to have health issues that they have to come to a provider for, so that must be scary for them. It must be, like, really challenging, too, especially if their friends aren't doing it and they have to, you know, be on an inhaler or they have to use an EpiPen because they have an allergy that's anaphylactic to a food and X, Y, and Z friend doesn't. So that's a lot for them already, right? So you're establishing that relationship with them and really setting the groundwork for kind of how they're going to see healthcare providers in the future as they get older, and then they're going to develop comorbidities like we all do when we're older, right? So you're really at the forefront of um, establishing that connection with them, so being able to empower them and set up a positive relationship from an early standpoint will help them uh, long-term. So. Older patients. So the U.S. population is aging at a rapid pace. By 2030, about 71 million Americans will be 65 or older. So 2030 is not too far from now, right? So I think this book was written in 2014, so it seems a little further away, but now we're in 2022, so in eight years from now, this was the estimate. Uh, communicating with older patients can be challenging because there are more heterogeneous population than a younger population. So they come with more varied life experiences and cultural backgrounds that can impact their perception of health and health illness, and their willingness to adhere to medication regimens. And then also there's a normal aging process, right? So they may have sensory loss, a slower processing of information, or a decline in memory. So these things just unfortunately happen, right, when we're older, so we need to also have that reinforcement with the patient more frequently. So some tips if you're dealing with a primarily older patient population, you want to allow extra time and schedule the older patients earlier in the day too. Um, Usually um, older patients tend to wake up early so they may be more like fresh in the beginning of the day Um, and also allows you to have a little bit more time usually to spend with the patient versus it being like, oh, it's five o'clock and we have a 4.30 appointment and I have to leave soon, right? So it provides you a little bit more time to spend with that patient. Uh, Minimize visual and auditory distractions as much as possible, especially because of the sensory loss, which we talked about, right? So maybe some hearing um, impairment, you know, so if you can have a quiet environment for them, that's ideal. And sit face-to-face. Listen without interrupting. Speak slowly, uh, which is something that I speak fast naturally as a person, so um, speaking slowly is important when you're communicating uh, with elderly patients. Clearly and loudly enough to assure you're being heard, too and use short, simple words and sentences. Stick to one topic at a time. So especially with our geriatric patient population, they may have 10 disease states going on. But try to focus on one topic at a time. Make sure everyone feels comfortable with that. Do your teach-back method before moving on to another. You can also simplify and write down your instructions so they can take that with them when they leave. Charts, models, and pictures are helpful. And lastly, always give your patients and your appointments time to ask questions. Have you guys heard of polypharmacy before? Yes. Okay, so polypharmacy is defined as the concurrent use of several drugs at the same time. So our geriatric patients are most always on more than one medication. They're on many medications for multiple disease states. And polypharmacy isn't necessarily bad because we do need to be on multiple medications to treat multiple diseases sometimes or multiple meds to tackle even one disease. But we need to make sure that they're appropriate, right? And when we have therapeutic duplication, which is multiple medications within the same class or we have medications that we're putting on board to treat side effects of other medications instead of recognizing it as a side effect, we just put a new one on to treat that side effect. This can be really uh, detrimental to the patient and put them at risk for adverse drug reactions. Um, Also uh, for non-adherence too, right? If you have three tablets to take versus eight, you know, you're more likely to take three. Um, It increases the risk of hospitalizations too because of these adverse drug reactions and medication errors as well. If they're on multiple meds, it's more likely for them to be an error where they may take the wrong tablet when they were supposed to take something else um, or dispensing errors potentially as well. So that's why it's important to do this drug review every session with the patient. Also, it's helpful to advise them to use only one pharmacy. Pick the pharmacy you want, but if you can route all your meds through one pharmacy, that's really helpful because that's one pharmacist that can check all your drug interactions. Because if you're filling five prescriptions at CVS, six prescriptions at Walgreens, and like two other prescriptions at this independent down the road, it's really hard to send, like, it's hard. That one pharmacist at each of those locations only has a snapshot of information, so they don't know what else you're taking. So if I'm like the CVS pharmacist, I don't know what you're taking at Walgreens, I don't know what you're taking at the independent pharmacy, so I can only look at drug interactions with what I see, not what you're taking at other locations. So one pharmacy is really helpful. <clears throat> also, you want to advise patients to report any new symptoms to their healthcare professionals. So a lot of times, especially with geriatric patients, they can have a side effect, and they can attribute it to just like getting older, but it could very well be a side effect of one of the medications that they're taking. So make sure that they're always telling you about the side effects or symptoms that they're experiencing at each visit, because you can take a look at their meds and see if it might be a side effect of a medication, or maybe they need a referral, um, or, or there's something that you can do to improve their quality of life. Alright, so six strategies to improve medication adherence. So use the least number of medications possible and use a simple dosing schedule if you can, preferably one that's been agreed to by the patient. And then help correct non-adherence by seeing it as a problem requiring a team effort. So not placing blame on the patient. Maybe there's something that you can do as the provider to help with adherence. Maybe it's education that you can provide to the patient more on why this medication is important. Maybe it's the dosing schedule that could be modified for the patient. Maybe it's a cost issue. Their insurance doesn't cover it, and you can switch (coughs) to another agent that their insurance does cover. So always don't jump to placing blame and see what you can also do to help. See non also as a continuing problem. So if the patient was instructed to take the, certain dr- the drug a certain way, so my father-in-law, for example, it doesn't mean that they're always going to comply with those instructions over a long period of time. So always check in with your patients. <clears throat> so develop um, an inquiring approach to individualizing medication regimens, keeping the focus on the patient's needs, desires, their beliefs and motivations, challenges, experiences, and issues with cost, memory, and disabilities. Help the patients to develop strategies to deal with these issues. So if they're forgetting to take their tablets, a pill, um, you know what I'm trying to say, right? The thing where you put the pills in what is it called pill box there we go so a pill box is helpful right something monday through friday or they um, sell them also like in a month too that you can do that as well so have that with them or maybe they're more technologically savvy there's alerts that they can set on their phone things like that would be really helpful if they're having issues with remembering to take their medications we talked about cost um, doing the teach back to make sure that they have a level of understanding Develop also a plan for follow-up and monitoring and modification of a medication plan after mutually agreeing to one. So after you've agreed to this, let me see you back. Um, I'll have you make a follow-up appointment with me in two weeks. Um, We can see how your blood pressure is responding to the lisinopril dose that I increase, and then we can go from there. And remember, if you see non-adherence, it will take more than a one-time encounter to address it and correct it. Because patients don't change their behavior simply because you told them to change, right? Changing behavior for all of us takes time and it takes practice. So clinicians must take the necessary steps to make sure that their patients, regardless of their age, sex, or employment status, have access to the medications that they need and determine whether the patient can afford the medication by asking questions such as, do you have any concerns about filling this prescription today? So maybe you don't want to come out directly and be like, you can pay for this medication, right? Like, that won't be such an appropriate question, but do you have any concerns about filling this prescription today? Would be helpful so that patient has the floor if there are some concerns there. And I mentioned in the previous lecture, just knowing the cost of your personal formula, your general medications that you use, are going to be helpful. There's also things called like $4 lists or discount lists at some pharmacies as well. So being familiar with the pharmacies in your area, that's helpful too. And then you'll get a feel as you practice. You'll know that um, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, they're often grouped together. You know you can use one or the other for heart failure, for example. But ACE inhibitors are really cheap because they've been generic for a long time. But ARBs are more expensive. So if I have a choice to, to prescribe an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, all things created equal. The ACE inhibitor is probably going to be cheaper for my patient. So, in addition to do you have any concerns about filling the prescription today? Because that patient might not know how much that medication costs until they get to the pharmacy, too. So, you should have some general idea. Or if it's, like, a specialty product that you're recommending, just thinking, like, a dermatologist appointment, you know, a lot of, like, medications for, like, acne and things like that are not covered by prescriptions. So you should also, like, know if there's a compounding or an independent pharmacy that you can refer that patient to where they can make the medication for cheaper for the patient than at, like, a traditional CVS or Walgreens. Um, hormonal therapy, too, that's compounded at a lot of pharmacies, right? So having knowing your drugs that you commonly work with and then how much those agents cost and having relationships with your pharmacies so that you can direct the patient better is helpful. There's also patient assistance programs, too. So if it's a particular drug that's a high-cost medication, there may be what PAP is called, so patient assistance programs, and you can look on the website for that uh, product see what patient assistant programs are available, and a lot of times they'll cover, um, give a discount coupon code that's there, and patients can use that. You'll also want to consider non-medical treatments such as lifestyle changes. So weight loss, smoking cessation, exercise, and relaxation, good advice in general, right? But these things make a big difference um, for patients, especially when we have things like um, obesity, um, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, um, weight, uh, smoking, um, exercise, all of these can impact a lot um, the patient's outcomes. Uh, prescribe generics when possible over the brand names. They're, they're less expensive for the patients. Uh, learn your drug prices. Be honest with your patient. Uh, try older drugs first. Don't be seduced by every new drug on the market. Um, you'll want to be able to Get some experience with that medication and, and really understand it fully before you jump to the newest drug that's out there, which is likely the most expensive. Your textbook mentioned this, so it's in the slides, but a prescribed half a pill, but I'm going to tell you a qualification that I added to this slide. So they said, prescribe half a pill, the price of some medications does not increase very much for higher dose pills that can be cut in half for the appropriate dose. So for example, if you're prescribing someone five milligrams uh, once daily, and it's, say, $5. But a 10 milligram tablet is only $6. So they're saying that you could prescribe the 10 milligram tablet and just instruct the patient to cut it in half, and basically their dosage goes further that way, right? But the huge caveat that I think the textbook overlooked is not all medications can be cut in half. Um, So if you're going to recommend something like this, please make sure your patient understands how to take the medication so they're not gonna double their dose accidentally. And then also you'll need to consult the ISMP's list, um, which is a do not crush list. So basically anything that's extended or a delayed uh, release tablet, it can't be cut in half or crushed. Because what happens is that you break that um, delayed release uh, formulation up and the patient gets all the dose at once. So like for example, if you have a 10 milligram delayed release tablet, if you cut that in half, it's gonna give the dose all at once to the patient and it's not gonna give it as intended, which is a slow amount over like a 24 hour period. So there are some exceptions to this, but if you just Google ISM or ISMP do not crush list, it will pull it up for you and you can control that for your medication and see if it's something that can be crushed or not. Um, that's something we use in practice all the time. So if you are to prescribe a half a pill, Creative idea, just make sure your patient understands it and it actually is a medication that can be cut in half. Also does it have a score, right? Like is it a capsule that they're gonna have to open? Like that's not practical, right? Them to divvy up the little pellets on the inside of it. It needs to be a tablet with a score they can use a pill cutter for. So that's also something to consider. And then keep up to date with the pharmaceutical assistance programs. Those are those patient patient assistance programs that I mentioned. Do you
1: guys have any questions so far? Any other content? Yes. So uh, I don't know if the, this um, talks about like the deaf uh, patients and blind patients, just in communication. That does it go into that.
0: Into
1: what? Into like speaking with the deaf, uh, like you know
0: like, uh, no. having
1: the the screens, the VR, I think VR and DL, something like that they call. For like those who are um, you know, impaired, hearing impaired, and visual impaired.
0: Okay, no, no, it didn't go into the depth of that, but do you have any information about that, what you're I talking mean, about the screen? I, mean, I
1: used to work for Baptist up north, and, mm-hmm. and so, like, a lot of times, I know when we schedule a lot of outpatient uh, appointments, like, for, like, mammograms and things of that sort, a lot of times we would have to, like, you know, set it up and send emails out to the appropriate department so that way they can have it set up when the patient comes in.
0: And what was it that you had set up? What
1: was um, it? It was just, like, basically like a teleprompter, you know, uh-huh. for those who are deaf. So when they would come in, they will just read the, the monitor screen and so they could explain what procedure that they're going to have done and things of that sort. Okay.
0: Yeah. And then was it, like, a two-way where, like, you could type and then it would
1: I, appear I on it, there? I, I don't recall because we just will set it up and then it will be, like, out of our hands. But okay. I know it was a big issue, like, a lot of complaints like you know whenever for the uh commission stuff like that patients would complain hey you know they didn't have any you know prompters for us and stuff like that because oh, okay, they're coming from like new york and things of that sort so where they usually have it uh readily available and stuff like that so i know that was one of the things that we were like harped on to make sure we asked the questions and we actually scheduled that for their point like time for
0: them to review the written content okay yeah interesting um that's not something that i've worked with um personally but i work mostly in the inpatient setting not the outpatient setting but we do have written things that we provide to the patients if we're doing kind of like newer treatments like i'm thinking about our COVID monoclonal antibodies because they're still under emergency youth authorization they're not fda approved so like a patient has to sign a consent And then we've worked to develop that consent, you know, and it will go through all the information for them, and they actually have to sign that. So kind of similar to that in a way where they're reading something and there's some type of documentation that they're actually seeing that as well. So, yeah. And you guys might encounter other things in your practice depending on, you know, the patients that you interact with too, other, you know, unique tools and things like that and devices that are available that aren't reviewed in the presentation. I just thought
1: that was interesting because I think you said the book was written in, like, 2014, Mm or something like that, so I thought that would have been, like, like one of those communication barriers that Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's
0: not something that they went okay. into, but yeah, I guess for any of you guys doing your rotation at Baptist, then you'll probably see for, that,
1: for, yeah. For inpatient <laughs> services, Yes. they have to have translation services and services for people for inpatient services, 24 hours, so they contract a company, mm-hmm. Uh, they just, uh, and that
0: might be a CMS requirement, I'm not sure yeah, if the it's Center it's for perfect. Medicare or Medicaid mm-hmm. Services. Yeah, I know we do have translation services as I mentioned for heart failure for uh, the other languages. I just haven't personally encountered for hearing impaired, but to your point, it has yeah. to be equitable for all people, yeah, so I'm sure we do. So
1: my wife used to work for a uh, uh, non um, practice, and she was actually a medical interpreter,
0: oh, okay. so that's what
1: the yes. term so every time I hear translator, like she's like, no, it's not translator, it's interpreter.
0: And so, I'm yeah, interpreter. So, okay. so you would have
1: to get like certified and stuff like that, um, to either, to sit with the uh, you know with the provider along with the patient and stuff like that. A lot of times the patient, you know, a lot of times they service like the Creole speaking and also the, the Spanish speaking patients, and so a lot of times they'll come with their their spouse or significant other, and they didn't allow them to you know interpret for them. They'll say, hey, they'll call.
0: Right, right. right. Me to to- yeah, so when I mentioned using like bilingual staff and things like that, it is helpful to like get the family involved, but you do run the risk to your point of is my message being translated correctly? And if you do have someone who's a certified medical interpreter, um you can verify that they understand your medical jargon and then they're gonna be able to like actually like get that information to the patient. Whereas you might say a whole list of things and the only partial part of that gets relayed to the patient, right? So that's true. It's a good point. All right. So continuing on, um, if controlled substances must be prescribed, uh, write prescriptions in such a way that they can't be tampered with, and stick to um, a treatment plan for the patient. Also review your controlled substance databases. Have you guys heard of e Yes. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, so this is the Florida Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. So what is E-Force? Can someone tell me? It's an online program that a practitioner... 'cause prescribers have to see what um, like other healthcare um providers have, like, prescribing for, the, for narcotics or, like, controlled substances, is the other it? Absolutely. The limitation, to is it is it's for Florida. It's not, like, a national um, database, but it is for Florida. So, like, if someone's coming to fill an oxycodone prescription at my pharmacy, I'm able to log into the system as a pharmacist, search their name, and I can see what other pharmacies they filled narcotics at. So I can see if they've been shopping at other pharmacies their first time, if they've been consistently filling it. Um, so you have to update this data. Database by putting um, their information in, but it serves as a good resource for Florida um, as the prescription drug monitoring program. So that's what it is. Um,
1: yes. I'm just curious. So, like, what is the process like, like for you? Let's say if you did um, look it up and they've been to like five different. So do you like just automatically just contact the physician or the provider and just let yeah. them know, hey? Okay, as
0: yeah. to tell patient, hey, you've been, you know... Yeah, yeah. I be- hey, Dr. So-and-so, um, I just wanted to let you know I, I put in your patient's information into eForce. Um, I saw the oxycodone prescription actually was just filled the same prescription five days ago at a CVS down the street. Um, so I just wanted to bring that information to your attention um, so that you're aware of it. And as a pharmacist, you cannot fill a prescription. You can choose not to fill a prescription that you don't feel comfortable with. We also have that autonomy as well. So depending on how that conversation, with the provider goes hopefully it would go oh my goodness thank you for bringing that to my attention i do not want to prescribe this medication. you know that would hopefully be the the good solution to that but if you feel like anything is at uh, play then you can choose not to fill that prescription as well yeah so um keep current on the epidemiology of abuse behavior and drug pharmacodynamics kinetics interactions signs of toxicity signs of withdrawals uh, when prescribing medications that can be abused Um, So if it's a medication that can be abused, for example, and a patient's presenting to you for their follow-up appointment, you know, they're shaking, they're jittery, maybe they have pinpoint pupils, you know, you should know what the side effects are of some of these um, medications so that you're able to assess if maybe there is um, potential for abuse there. Um, Institute a one-doctor, one-pharmacy treatment plan in which the patient can only see one doctor in the clinic, and the clinic will only send the patient to one pharmacy um, as a strategy uh, to minimize drug-seeking behaviors. So if you have a practice with, like, ten different prescribers, you know, it should be directed through just one prescriber for that continuity of follow-up, and, of course, they shouldn't be going to multiple pharmacies. Uh, Consult with all peers, staff, and others to raise their awareness uh, levels. And restate the position that the clinic will take in cases of uh, will take cases of administrative or legal action um, if ever there is an abuse situation or you know tampering of your prescription or anything like that. And with any medication for having a potential for abuse, the clinician can require the patient to sign a consent form to document agreement with the decision-making process and treatment plan. And then if the patient deviates from the plan, um, it's done voluntarily and at the patient's own risk. So these are recommendations that are provided. So whenever you're building trust uh, with your patient, it's important to take uh, ownership of all your messages. Use personal pronouns, so I rather than those you statements. Express genuine care and concern for the patient by using active listening. So we went through five tips for active listening. Empathetic responses that focus on the content of a message. (laughs) Ask for feedback about how your messages are being received using um, the teach back method open-ended questions as much as possible keep all judgment blame evaluations distractions um, for uh, out of uh, out of conversations when discussing a person's health behaviors use words and um, phrases that are appropriate to the person's level of understanding or their language and set boundaries as a health professional too so that um, patients begin with their own health behaviors and encourage them to take part in the health decision-making. You can't fix everybody, you know, so you can just try to set them up with success by providing them the information, providing your treatment uh, recommendations, your prescriptions, but you need to get them involved in their own healthcare because ultimately that's the thing that's going to make the difference is the patient's involvement. Okay, so there's another case uh, here so uh tg presents and we'll go through because we're almost at 550 but this is like my last slide so we're going to end early today okay so we'll just finish with this case and then i'll let you guys head out so tg presents at the clinic with a recurring ear infection he's from turkey and he speaks a little english so as you begin to give him instructions on taking the oral antibiotic that you're prescribing um he becomes agitated and frustrated So in broken English, he asks you why he would need to swallow tablets when it's his ear that hurts. So how would you proceed? What do you guys think? And just, if anyone wants to give me some examples, what do you think is going on here? Mm -hmm. I heard a family member, um, a translator, (laughs) uh, an interpreter if there's one available. Okay, anything else you guys can think of that might be helpful? What about maybe like some diagrams, yeah, or like pictures? Graphics,
1: so like Sorry? Some type of graphics? Or something yeah, some type of
0: graphics or something would be helpful as well. Yeah. Exactly, so I'll give you the official answer here because I printed it out for the book. Right. So um, it's important to recognize your patient's understanding of the English language, so their frustration may be due to difficulty understanding English, or it could be used due to your medical jar- jargon as well. So they're saying that um, he's speaking to you in broken English, so it's probably a little bit of both, but he also might not be familiar with any medical jargon you are, you're using and you might not be aware, because like, you talk to healthcare professionals all day and then you go and talk to the patient. So sometimes, even though you know you're not supposed to use medical jargon, it slips in there, right? Um, so that might be where the breakdown is occurring, so you'll want to figure out where exactly that breakdown is occur- occurring. What is it that he doesn't understand? So you'll also want to speak slower, too. That's another strategy. Uh, Using the less medical jargon, checking in frequently with the patients to make sure they understand. So maybe you have a whole explanation for them, but making that in shorter chunks and then checking in to see if the patient understands. And then if it turns out that it is due to language, um, so it's not just like medical jargon that he didn't understand in English or you speaking too fast, and the whole thing, the language is an issue across the board even when you do make those changes, um, see if there's a family member you said uh, you mentioned or translation service. You could see they suggest if someone in the waiting room also speaks that language that the patient speaks, but the challenge that you run into that is that you don't know if your message is getting relayed correctly. So I would definitely advise to use a translation service when you can. Um, use diagrams if necessary. You can also give written instructions that they could take to a friend or a relative, like a patient pamphlet. Um, I, I would advise you to use translation services or get that at least for your practice. I think they're very you know, user-friendly now, especially as we've all moved to, with COVID, anyone that wasn't moved into the 21st century with technology had to with COVID, right? So I think um, you know there's lots of video chat yeah. services and things like that around and available. Okay, guys, so that's it for today, all right? So it was a quick lecture. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Thank you